This is a note to the self-situation A microphone test or a dense dictation Last time, they tried to fit me in a funny suit This time, they tried to fill my pocket full of loot Next time, they'll start to weep while I'm bailing Next time, I'll have to wait through their way. and welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer I'm Matt Dwyer, everyone This is an independent music and arts podcast And as of late, it's leaned heavily, heavily towards music and today, it doesn't. <laughs> um, today is my 200th episode, and uh, I don't. If you're a frequent listener, you may know that a, a couple weeks ago I had Kyle Field from Little Wings on the podcast, and it turned out to be a two-parter. And um, Kyle and I became pals immediately, and we've um, been texting and phone calling and messaging on Instagram. All the all the ways we communicate these days, but Kyle was like, "Hey, maybe I should interview you for the two hundredth episode." And um, I was like, "Yeah, that sounds great." So we did. And speaking of Kyle Field of Little Wings, that opening song was, or and still is, and remains to be, next time from his album Light Green Leaves. And um, I highly suggest you go to his Bandcamp or other forums and check out all of his music. And I, those links are in the show notes. And that's one of my favorite songs of his. Um, and that's a, not an easy thing to say because there's a lot of songs of Kyle Field of Little Wings to enjoy. Um, 200 episodes. This is crazy. I, If you have been a listener since the beginning, I thank you for being here. Uh, this whole time. It has been on and off for eight years that I've been doing the podcast. Pretty sure I'm staying on for a long, long while. I took a break after Feral Audio uh, went kaput, and uh, I was intimidated by learning how to record, edit myself. But finally, I got, I missed it so much, I said, fuck it. And I learned, and speaking of which, I want to thank uh, a few people, Dustin Marshall, who started Feral Audio and this podcast would not exist without him. And uh, I was, I, I don't know if I talk about this in the interview with Kyle, but I was at a real crossroads with my life and podcasting happened and it has changed it. And I've been allowed to talk to amazing, great people. Some other people I would like to thank who are also amazing is uh, Danny Bland, who's a three-time guest, who's also helped me get a lot of great guests. Wayne and Margaret Kramer, who've also been very supportive and got me a lot of great guests. And Adam McKay, who's also landed me some great guests, and I also hope those names just all seemed very name-droppy, because I'm a very Hollywood guy. Um, not remotely <laughs> true, but um, anyway, those are the thanks I want to get out of the way. It was, um, if you're obvious, if you listen to this podcast, you'll know that I don't, I try very hard to not talk about myself. I try to focus, keep it focused on the guest, and if, if I, must I interject something about my life to make a point or to relate, but I really try not to do that. So in this episode and the part two, which will be on Patreon, Kyle and I, when we talk, we tend to talk for long periods of time and it flies by. And this interview, which, well, a conversation, I'd like to call them. I don't really like interviews. Anyway, we went for two hours. Part one is available free on the old uh, Anywhere You Stream podcast. Part two is exclusively on my Patreon page, patreon.com slash Matt Dwyer. All that stuff, again, in the show notes. Um, 
So just so you know, there's a lot of stuff we covered. You'll learn some stuff about me that I may or may not, like I have shared over the years. I know I sometimes give little tidbits, but I think we let a lot of it hang out here. So that is that. I thank you very much for listening to this episode and all the others. Please go back to my catalog. I have a rich array of guests. I'm really proud of my 200 episodes. And to be quite honest, oh, well, I talk about this with Kyle, I think. So I'll leave it out. I won't point to it. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. I'm proud to have episode 200 of Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Now here's my conversation with Kyle Field, who's conversing with me, Matt Dwyer. Oh, I gotta do what I don't want to. High as the haints that... Are we on your... Officially on your 200th episode? Um... It's kind of a nebulous number because a little bit because I've deleted a couple. Uh, Got it. But uh, as of the way it, it's numbering out, it is the yeah, like it, it, it yeah, technically yeah, sort of. Congratulations! It's crazy. It's a lot of conversations. It is. I I actually deleted one with. Uh, I hope I get his name right, Peter Navarro who's a Trump cabinet member. Uh-huh. Because um, he... Uh, this I interviewed him way before he was a Trump cabinet member or before Trump was even a... Polit- Got it. But uh, I just was like, I don't want this fucking guy in my... I don't want my name associated with this fucking scumbag. <laughs> right. How did he seem at the time? He seemed fine. He was talking about a documentary that he was a part of that was... Just a, a lot about like exports and imports, very China based and fear yeah. fear based, and uh, um, it was interesting. But I just I didn't I just uh, I think he's full of shit. And I, I also uh, deleted another one from a guy who was kind of like his, I don't know other things I just didn't agree with socially, politically, and I was just like I'm not I'm not I'm not I don't want to. I don't want to cause mis- wrong messaging out in the world. I don't want to be a part of that problem. So I was like, fuck, fuck that. And I might do a th- couple others from this <laughs> guy I hate. <laughs> do those usually occur to you like in the dark in bed and you're like, do I do it now? Or do I, I make a note to myself so I remember to do it tomorrow? The Peter Navarro one, I hemmed and hawed over for a long time. Um, just because, and when I first started doing the podcast, like I would, I wouldn't like challenge people. Not that I challenge anybody now, but I was just like, my thought was, uh, go along for the ride. So if it was somebody who was like, there was a guy who believes like trees and, um, mountains and have souls and spirits and whatever. And I don't necessarily believe that i don't disrespect i don't him i don't equate him on the level of somebody like navarro but i just uh or like a a psychic who talks to aliens i just would go along for the ride and say like you know and and go along and be like yeah i you know just because i felt like i don't know i didn't i didn't want to challenge anybody i just i was just talking to people about what they do for a living initially with the podcast um i was trying to do like a studs turkle type thing and just like Studs Terkel. Be, be, are you a Studs Terkel fan? My, my friend is. He always, he uses that as to say something is studly, like in slang, in text. 
Oh, I like uh, it's like, oh, I went on a run today. It's like, ah, oh, Studs Terkel. Like, that's, <laughs> that's deadly. <laughs> Studs was fascinating. And that's like his book, Working, uh, had a big impact on me. Uh, I don't know if you know his work, but he would interview people. Like, his, he would pick a topic mm-hmm. and he would interview people of all walks of life about death or their job or people who lived through the Great Depression. And, and the one about working just made me realize that, like, everybody has interesting stories and lives, even if it seems like, you know, I think people are, you know, confused in the world and they think, like, only movie stars have fascinating, interesting lives. And it's like everybody has stories to tell. And that was what I initially was trying to do. But right. I have such a... Um, but then I'm, you know, then I was like, oh, let's see if I can get some Black Panthers on. <laughs> it's like my my yeah. my proclivity for, um, you know, radicals and musicians and artists kind of won over. And that's and then over time, it just became more just an arts podcast, music arts. And, and not that much comedy, correct? I, I like not that many comics. I've only like I had Eddie Pepitone on, but Eddie Pepitone was. Um, he said, I'll only do it if, uh, I'm going to have you read this book called, uh, I can't remember what it is. It's a Christopher Hedges book, uh, Empire of Illusion. And he's like, we're going to read, both read this book and we're going to discuss this book. So I was like, okay, that's really cool. And I don't know if you've read, Hedges is pretty much like a Chomsky social critic type. So, uh-huh. um, but I, cause, because when I started the podcast, a lot of comedians had podcasts. So I was just like, yeah, I was like, Everybody has comics on, and it's just everybody just sort of, uh, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but just sort of jerking off and doing bits and stuff. <laughs> and, right. And I didn't want to, I wanted to do something different, so I... Right. So, um, and I think the great thing is, is I think musicians are uh, as funny as most comedians, so that's always been a bonus. I wanted to talk about that I, because I've, I have thought that for the longest time, I agreed that a lot of musicians are funny, but they're not necessarily expected to be. And that I think it's easier to be funny if someone has no idea if you're funny or not. But then I feel like a comedian has the hardest, a much harder job than a musician. Um, I think being funny is much harder than just playing a song or writing a song. And a musician, like, take the Hell Freezes Over tour, for instance, um, the Eagles, when they come back and play Hotel California live with the, whatever, 20, 30 years after the song was a hit. Can you imagine Steve Martin, like, doing one of his albums in its entirety live? Like, maybe he could pull it off, but most people don't want to hear an old joke like jokes always have to be new each year yeah except i don't know if it's me because i was a comic but there are certain jokes like when i would be in clubs and stuff when mm-hmm. i was on the scene uh, that i would love when certain comics would like do bits that i loved and maybe that is i'm that's v- true i think that's a time uh, that's like an era thing too because now there's like their one hour whatever their one hour Netflix special if they're at that level right yeah um so maybe that's more what 
what you're talking about is more like jazz clubs back in the day of comedy, in a sense. Yeah. Also, I think about Steve Martin. Steve mm-hmm. Martin and, um, oh, shit, what's his name? Uh, Head, uh, Mitch Hedberg. Their jokes are kind of timeless. There's nothing you can, there's really nothing you could pin a time on about those guys. So I feel like their stuff would will kind of live forever. Um, yeah. And whereas like somebody, uh, oddly like George, a lot of George Carlin stuff, but there's also like social, like a lot of Bill Hicks stuff and it doesn't stand the time. Um, some people might be mad at me for that, but I feel like some of his stuff is pretty dated. <laughs> right. Um, nothing again. I mean, Hicks was a pretty, pretty interesting fellow, but, um, but yeah, that's, I think that's. So do you feel in a sense, like when you pulled back from doing as much comedy and started doing more of this, did it fill that space? Um, and, or do you like it even more than doing comedy? I do, like talking to people? I like it. I, I uh, when I first started doing the podcast, I really like loved it. Like I was just like, I was like, man, I wish I could have been doing this sooner. I think I had, I don't, I stopped doing this podcast twice. Uh, and I've actually had right. two uh, other podcasts. I had one before it and one I did with my wife briefly. Um, uh, but yeah, I didn't, I, I, I feel like I never fully felt satisfied from stand up. Like, I feel like it was for what I wanted to express was a limited form. And I started writing essays and short stories that I could sort of stretch out more. Um, yeah. Uh, and I also, I just sort of lost my, I don't doing stand up in Los Angeles isn't a lot of fun, especially when I first came here. There was now there's a lot more independent shows, uh, right? And it's kind of a, a, a very DIY thing. And I started a show with Duncan Trussell. Like, I think I told you this off the record or off like, but we did a show in a record store like this is like 15 years ago before people were kind of just doing shows in random weird spots. Um, but I, yeah. I, don't know, I put out an album. And when the album came out, I was like, all right, I'm going to start all over and start writing new material. And I went and did a couple shows and I was just didn't give a fuck. I just was. And plus, there's so many shows in L.A. where you go and you perform for like there's like 20 comics standing way in the back. And then there's five people in the audience and you wait fucking two hours to do your seven minutes. And I was just like and, you know, and you get home and it's like 11 o'clock at night. And once I. I just was like, I don't want to be doing this anymore. And the odd thing no. is, um, like if it was like, if you went and did a show where it was packed or if I did the improv and it was packed, that was always great. Or if I was in a club on the road, I always loved that. But um, I just stopped. I didn't want to do the road. I didn't want to be away anymore either. Right. And uh, I actually, the odd thing is, is the end of last year, I started gearing up to do stand-up again. I was like, all right, I'm going to come back. And I started writing stuff and I actually wrote a lot of stuff and I was getting ready and I was like starting to feel out booking shows. And then I was like, you know what? I'm not going to do this. I'm going to start the, I'm going to start the podcast again. And, uh, that's cool. And it's probably, you felt like you warmed up almost 
to the point where you were like, okay, I've done it up to this, you know, I just, and you didn't have to go on tour, like, essentially. Yeah, and I just felt like, and I was, I, I won. I kind of lucked out because, you know, COVID hit and then nobody could do stand-up and, like, I would have probably had, you know, a couple months of shows and then I would have been standing with my dick in my hand, so to speak, and, and I started right. the podcast up and immediately just started booking, like, I feel, and I felt like I was better at it, at talking with people. And I got, I don't know what it was if I don't, I don't know why, but like I started getting guests that really excited me. Like, I feel like I just really came out and I feel like it's since then it's continued. Like, I feel like I just keep getting these great guests and it keeps getting better and better. And I think, well, it's a good time for it too. <laughs> if you think about it, like all of these performers aren't really performing. So having a conversation maybe about their thing or is timely. I feel I got lucky with that because I feel like musicians aren't, they can't go on the road and, you know, push their album. So I'm getting, I think I'm messaging, like I'm probably messaging, I've messaged, like Tim Presley, I just messaged him on Instagram. And I mean, I did interview yeah. a dude who played in his, in uh, Darker My Love and a friend of his from The Strange Boys. So I think that helped that I had but mm -hmm. I also I think though you know people are trapped at home and are bored out of their fucking minds so they're like <laughs> reading their Instagram messages you know and I don't know how many followers Tim Presley has it's you know tens of thousands so it's yeah. like, I'm sure he gets messages all the time same with King Khan I was like he took a few months right. but I think like they're just people so it's working you know so may, may COVID last another two years so my podcast can flourish <laughs> they want to do something yeah <laughs> building your library it's yeah i feel like a somewhat of like it's not intentional but i'm like wow that's uh, rare is it, rare is my life lucky so i felt like <laughs> felt like i was like oh things are finally working people must die for my career to flourish right can we talk about um luck and i was wondering about the age 33, your age, when you turn 33, um, which some people call like the age of crucifixion. And wondering if you experienced anything strange because actually King Khan mentioned that. I was listening to that episode today and he said that, I'm gonna mess up his name, Jodorowsky. Yes, uh, the, the film. Told him this is your year of crucifixion. And I completely experienced that when I turned 33, like the Icarus thing. Um, I don't, I honestly, like 33, I, I, I really wish I could remember 33. <laughs> yeah. I moved to LA when I was 31 and the first few years here sucked. Like, they started mm -hmm. off great. Like, I got a manager right away. I got this, like, f big fancy lawyer was working with me. And I was like, my first six months here, I was like, this town's fucking easy. And then God, I think, heard that and fucking punched me in the center of my soul. And the next two years were, like, working a terrible job. And yeah. I got, I think I was so turned around because I moved here from New York, too. I was just, like, really confused. And I got in a really bad relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't, I remember 35 being more of a, 
a year where I turned 35. I was working as a fucking PA mm-hmm. at, at a awful production company where like it just the pay was humiliating that my bosses would humiliate like it was just like all the shit you hear about LA that were you know like people throwing their coffee cup at you never to me because I probably would have they probably knew I would probably throw it back <laughs> but, but, right but uh I did and I was like oh I'm 35 and I've always said I was gonna write movies and I've never actually finished writing a movie and I think that um, freaked me out a bit, and I started getting busy, and I started writing, like... I wrote, I just didn't write movies. I wrote other things, and I, so I was like... As I got busy and started writing more, like, movies. Which yeah. I never... I came very close to getting one made, and I think I've told you this, and it, that it falling apart was pretty much almost gave me a nervous fucking breakdown. <laughs> Jeez. It was brutal. Like I was literally waking, like I had anxiety. Like mm-hmm. you have like the biggest breakup of your life and you just think like you'll never be in love again. Like I was, yeah. that's how I felt like every day. I just felt like something had been removed from me. And I literally was waking up with this like anxiety and staring at the closet across from me. And like going like, well, I could like hammer a little hole through the wall and I could put the rope through there. <laughs> like I was. Yeah. And then I, or I was like, or I can go in a hospital and somehow one day it just lifted. And I don't know how or why, but then I realized I'm like, I need to get something else in my life besides uh, thinking that success in showbiz is going to bring me some kind of peace because it, For never, sure. it, it never will. Well, no. Satisfaction That's... in your art can bring you, I think, solace and, and joy. But to hang it all sure. on commercial success is fucking just stupid. <laughs> For sure. Did you go on meds then or anything, or did you just kind of get through it? I just got through it. I, I and eventually I, I, I uh, through Duncan Trussell. I actually said to Duncan Trussell, um, "I'm going to." I'm in a right position right now to join a cult. <laughs> and then, and then yeah. Jonah or uh, Duncan invited me to his house to do a meditation thing. Like it was Buddhist based, uh, Nigerian Buddhism. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that started helping me clear my head and uh, find different things to enjoy in the world. Like the beach boys. Yeah. Yes. I was thinking about, I made a little, I made some notes about things I thought would be interesting to talk about. And I was curious to know what you thought of this. I feel that entertainers and exercise sometimes don't go hand in hand. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And then it's kind of... It's kind of poo-pooed, or or it's kind of, like, from my world, the music world that I kind of sort of was around, it was like 85 to 90% of people probably didn't exercise, or if they did, they would kind of hide it, because it wasn't cool, because you were supposed to be more dour or something. Yeah. Did did that make... Well, yeah, because it's like a buff, a guy who's like... Any comedian who's ever gotten buff immediately became unfunny. Joe Piscopo is a fine right. of, of that. Carrot Top is 
the uh, oh gosh, great example. I'm not even talking buff though. I just the see. I've I've never interviewed someone on a podcast. I'm I have training wheels on right now, but you're doing a great job. Thank you. My idea is that I feel I feel like mind and body balance is such an overlooked thing in the arts sort of because but I think everyone thinks almost too much and doesn't balance it out with something that's a little mindless and I think that's why there's so much depression and anxiety um in the arts and community I think we balance like we forget that exercise can wash that anxiety and weirdness away but we uh, will drink and do drugs to find that right. same um, and I I think too my thing with exercising is like I like to wake up first thing in the morning and write and that's like when I'm at my crispest or my clearest yeah. And yep. then, and then in, in LA, that can by eleven o'clock some days it's too fucking hot to go outside and do something. True. Um, but I do think it's important, and I just did buy an exercise bike, one of those. There you go. But uh, I was doing it when I turned forty. I was I quit drinking for two years, if you can believe that. Mm-hmm. And I did Bikram yoga five times a week, and that was like a wow. How. I looked good. Did you kind of love it? I did love it, and I regret stopping doing that. And I felt, I f- felt really great. And I um, then you saw the documentary on the guy. <laughs> that was the uh, that was this is like ten, <laughs> eleven years ago. But I did, I did. I think I was doing it too much, and I started noticing that my towels that I used at the place started smelling like pneumonia. I think I was like fucking up my pH balance. Well, yeah. So I was like, Oh, I need to take a break from this. And then I just never returned. But I, I I, like probably, I can't help but think if I kept at it, I probably wouldn't have some of the physical issues I'm having in my hip and whatnot, but whatever. But I've always like gone on, I'm a big walker. I've always like, I like to take a walk and clear my head and think of things or, and I have dogs. Uh, so I have to walk. Yeah, I think from my perspective, something that you can do anywhere that you don't have to go to the hot room and pay money and all this, like walking where you can walk out your door, that's the most valuable to me. Because um, you don't have to think about it too hard. And then I don't think you have to walk much every day to just kind of move the blood, you know? Yeah, plus I live near the foothills, so if I just walk like a quarter or a half mile north of my apartment, I'm in like, it's residential, but there is like some trails and stuff, so I'm like, I can get a decent walk and like be somewhat in nature, and it's kind of, it's pretty perfect. Yep. Don't you feel like that helps your mind? I walk myself, and we have trails and this and that, and sometimes going out there and just getting away from especially getting away from like phone reception for me or a computer and the the mind clearing i feel like just almost has to be done as often as possible like it helps it helps every aspect like it definitely helps me creatively especially if you just like 
have an idea, leave it in the back of your head and just walk. And then some more times than not, something comes to you out of the definitely. And I also think that we underestimate the connection of nature, like being in nature. I mean, that's as old as did fucking Thoreau and Buddha and all these guys talk about that. It's as old as the hills, literally. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And at some point it, maybe became hokey like the word nature became hokey or something oh oh what you're gonna go out in nature and connect with your higher self or you know what i mean <laughs> well i also think that within a creative sorts uh, uh maybe i don't know as much as music but there's a jadedness that comes with the comedy world and a, a sort of like especially from chicago uh, where you, For sure, and it's, but isn't that an urbanness and, and urbanity monetizes, right? Yeah. So if you're in the city, you can make money doing your thing, and if you're provincial, there's no audience for the arts. Is the cliche? Yeah, I mean. So then that would create that divide. Yeah, I mean I've thought about moving to small towns a ton in my life, but I think if I couldn't walk to a diner, I, I definitely would put that hole above the closet and hang myself. <laughs> Second mention of that in the, in the cast. It is autumn. It is the season of rotting leaves. I understand. It's, it's, it's a beautiful melancholy, the fall season. Um, but that's what I like about Chicago is there's a, and I guess LA has like this, you could, it can be urban, but there's also like, I mean, like LA's very lush as is Chicago and there's, hills and trees and so it doesn't feel like when i was in new york it was just concrete and fucking piss and people all the time and it just that just like the six months i lived in la or new york i just i felt i don't know how people do it it just wore me i don't need fucking down yeah it's it's not it's not normal no the people yeah the people who can do it are are certain kind that's why there's a hostility in new york i think because it's like you're just you you you're just you know it's hot in the summer like august in in manhattan is one of the worst things i've ever experienced yeah it's yeah i i I would say like the hasidic jews walking around in black overcoat and hat and wool wool trousers in that weather like that that's dedication i always think about that when i watch westerns i'm like none of this looks like a great idea for the why it out in the desert i know they just only had one set of clothes though and you need that for like the scrub brush and the branches and to fall if you fall off your horse like you couldn't afford to skin your knee you know yeah because there was no anti-bacterials Yeah, I've thought about it a lot. And the hat works in the rain, even though it's hot in, in the sun, like the, the felt hat, you know? <clears throat> they must have been dehydrated all the time. I worry about the cowboys. I know. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, can we talk, can we, now that we're on the city topic, see how I'm structuring this? Yeah. It's very intentional. Um, can we talk about some things that are very Chicago. Yeah. It just I just want I'm going to give you one word and you respond to it in as many words <laughs> as you want. Okay. Chicago, this is not one word. This is like 10 words. Chicago deep dish pizza. 
love it or hate it or what question mark can i expand on pizza in chicago yes please i'm a obsessive though i my wife and i went plant-based so we've i have to make my pizzas differently now but um so that means no wheat plant no 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 meat no meat Uh, basically i'm saying i'm vegan i just don't want to say vegan because everybody hates vegans including myself Right, so you're using vegan cheese, or you're just foregoing the cheese idea? Uh, there's like a decent uh, mozza, fake mozzarella that I use. Cool. Uh, there's a decent fake Parmesan, but uh, I I make a really good. So I think what here's the thing: people miss. First of all, I th- there's two. I, first, see, I'm very passionate about pizza, I, and I had too many thoughts at once. First of all, your people, heart rate just went up. Yeah. <laughs> well, people don't understand that there's a before deep dish pizza. There was a thin crust tavern style uh pizza that mm-hmm. um it was it's cut in squares and it's cracker thin crust it's often but not always but more often than not cornmeal based and it was yeah. created to be like a finger food in taverns so people would you know could hold their drink in one hand and eat this tiny square piece of pizza in the other the cheese on top or on the bottom uh, the the way it's layered on a tavern style pizza is traditional sauce bottom uh, sauce okay. cheese and then the you know sausage and whatnot. Uh, I think the misconception people have about deep dishes: a most people probably never had a proper deep dish pizza. They probably got a shitty slice in an airport, or they went to some mm-hmm. tourist shithole and they didn't get the right kind of stuff. The misconception, mm-hmm. and there's also there's pan pizza and there's but. Deep dish pizza, like if you go to Lou Malnati's, the it's not. People think it's like this fucking super thick crust, and it's not. It's thin, and it's also crispy on the bottom, and it has a crunch to it. Yep. It's not yep. super fucking thick, and it's uh, right. And I don't know. I always get. I think when people are like, "That's not pizza," I'm like, "The dough is a fuck is a vessel for what you want to do yep. with it." Then you go to Japan and there's like great sushi pizza. I've like watched. Yeah. I used to like get drunk and watch endless videos about pizza for like years until because I was obsessed with making it. But it's like there is, or when people are like, you don't put pineapple on pizza. It's like you can put anything on it as long as it <laughs> complements the other. You know, you don't put like f- frozen yogurt and sausage, but, but um. So I think people have the misconception. I, I hate that people, but I also hate that people solely think that Chicago pizza is deep dish pizza because th- these thin crust tavern style pizzas have been around since like the forties, thirties, forties. There's a, and there's like these, and two of the restaurants that, or three of the restaurants that uh, created that style still exist and they're um, phenomenal. So do you like the deep dish or do you resent it? I do like it. I don't, I, I make, I actually, when I started making pizza, I just was like, for some reason I was like, I was like, I'm going to learn how to make deep dish pizza. And it took a long time for me to get it right. And I think when it's, when you get the right stuff, it's great. Uh, The sauce that goes with mine is, I think the sauce is like, incredible um 
but you have to get the right stuff. Otherwise you're getting, you know, it's like there's a gazillion pizza places in Chicago and they all suck. Just like New York, there's a thousand pizza places, but I could list sure. five that are, that are great. And then the My- rest is just shitty fucking corner pizza. Right. My connection to Chicago-style deep-dish pizza, as I believe it was described on the menu at this restaurant that used to exist, they also made the thin-crust pizza. But the first time I ever had it was at a restaurant in San Luis Obispo, California. But it was a guy from Chicago who had moved to the West Coast, and he, he was very serious about it. And it was called Palindrome's Pizza. And he had a sandwich board out in front of the restaurant. And there would be a new palindrome, you know, where the words go backwards and forwards, say the same thing, um, in chalk every day. And I think they were, like, closed Mondays or whatever. And I think I was, like, 21 or or so, but they also had a booth at the farmer's market where he would just make pizzas and and you could just buy a slice. And it was one of my, the things I looked forward to more than anything was going to the farmer's market and getting one of those thick. And it wasn't too thick, but the crust, like you said, it was, it was kind of a bready crust, but it wasn't soft. It had a just softer than like a graham cracker almost. Yeah. Does that sound familiar? And then yeah. like a nice thick layer of cheese and then tons of sauce. See, that was the one I experienced that grew that that I still remember. And the pepperoni was under the sauce, right? Yeah, like I did yeah, you build it it's the dough, the cheese, and like yep. some places don't even use shredded. They use like whole slices of cheese. And there's a, I mean, I wouldn't put it past this guy because that's what it kind of seemed like. It was like... I, it sounds like he did it right. There's an episode of Bourdain in Chicago, and he goes to this guy's... Bert, mm-hmm. Bert, I forget his Bert's last name. But his place yep. is Bert's place. And that guy, I've, that place... And he actually opened two other restaurants before his, and they were like, like one of them being... Pequod's, which is like one of the infamous Chicago pizza places, but he would put the pizza or the cheese slices of cheese so it would go around the pan, so it would caramelize around with the oh, crust, man. and it's it's incredible. You need this. This this thick slice <laughs> is what you want if you've been drinking all night. We love him. We're so we like. We watch it like I think they threw more episodes up somewhere or another because we don't have proper cable, and then we're just like, I, I can't believe he's gone. Like this, this guy seemed to love life and food so much, you know. Uh, John Lurie talked about. I can't remember if he talked about it on my episode or if we talked about it off off. But he also talks about it on his TV show that's coming out. Um, but uh, he said that. Because they were friends, and he said that yeah. it, it it seemed as if fame had gotten to him. And I wrote on a show that was like a parody of Bourdain's show, and Bourdain actually did an episode of the show. Mm-hmm. And the host, my friend Jonah Ray, said that when they were shooting, like, it was... When they would take a break, just on the street in New York City, everybody... Everybody came up to him, like, whether they were from fucking Indochina or like 
in like any from all around the world people would come up and be like hey you did an episode in my country and like everybody yeah. wanted to, and it's like you know that's got that's gotta be hard and i guess yeah. like he just started to withdraw and not not enjoy being out as much because he couldn't be i mean it's insane the guy was like there's there's not many people who are that fucking famous that people from third world countries know who you are. It's true. And I feel like I could see the fatigue occasionally when you're just like, oh my gosh. Like, no matter what the backdrop is, if it's a third world country and we're going to sample street food, I'm the white, the tall white man with gray hair who's being followed <laughs> by a camera. You know? It's like, and everyone's always looking at me, even if they don't know who I am. I've never, I, yeah, I never thought about that. But like his style of interviewing and like his curiosity is what really like made, because he took time to talk to just these people, just people. And yep. and I think that's like going back to Studs Terkel, like that's, uh, um, and I think that resonates with everyone. Because they're like, oh, everyone is interesting. I'm interesting. And it, it, it becomes a very personalized, you personalize your experience with him and this guy making shrimp on a, you know, a, on the street in a dirty town. Like it's, I, I think that resonates with people on a higher level. I hope that I... I Sure, but that's the double-edged sword because then he becomes famous for being such a down-to-earth guy, but then everyone in the world knows who you are. Oh, I'm sure that guy couldn't get a fucking drink anywhere. Even, and, like, you think New York is a town for anonym, anonymity, but it's like, that town I, is packed with tourists. You're fucked. You're, he should have got the hell out true. of New York as much as you love it. It's like, you're screwed because it's constantly filled with tourists. For sure. He should have moved to, like, Morro Bay, California, or just somewhere worn a hoodie and anyway that I don't want to shoulda coulda woulda with Bourdain but um <laughs> hey love him rest in paradise soldier speaking of soldiers soldier field thoughts memories did you go to games growing up was that your thing or I your family's thing I was not uh, of I've told you this the football players kicked the shit out of me I played peewee football right. and I sucked at it um yep. The Bears, that that whole '85 world, the yep. world that was fun as a kid, like a small child. Super Bowl Shuffle, yeah. Um, but I, football never clicked with me. I went to Soldier Field once, but I went to a Cubs game before it, so I'd already drank and ate a bunch of red meat. So I fell asleep I, during a football game. The only time I've been to Soldier Field, I fell asleep. <laughs> But Wrigley Field is a beautiful place. Okay, wait. Wrigley is the baseball stadium. Yeah, that's the Chicago Cubs play on the north side. White Sox play on the south side. Cubs, Wrigley Field, I mean, they've updated it recently, but when even up to like five years ago, it was still this, like, it. it's so small it could fit inside Dodger Stadium. Like, it. it's small, it's intimate, even if you don't give a fuck about baseball, you could go there and it's relaxing and just a great, beautiful place to be. And just like right in the heart of a, 
as I think baseball parks should be, like in the middle of a city, like in a neighborhood, people's apartments right. just right next door. Um, but I stopped watching baseball because the Cubs owners are avid supporters of Trump and they uh, uh, are on his uh, fundraising team or whatever. Yeah. And I just, I'm, and I'm like, that cocksucker, no offense to cocksuckers, I'd love everyone who sucks cock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm like, the, the, Trump has federal agents in the, my hometown, and I'm like, I can't be on, I cannot support those owners. I cannot give them money. I cannot watch a game. I cannot do right. anything that, because that's offensive to me. Sad, right. because I do like baseball, but I, I also tired of the pro-military endless pro-military and nationalism that goes on with sports and I'm just like I can't do- I know it's, it's super depressing yeah and it- um <clears throat> yeah um speaking of Chicago did you see the Grateful Dead at Soldier Field why do I feel you saw the- I did I did the, the the reformed for their 50th anniversary of course sans um Jerry Garcia but um, that was really that was really neat, actually. It's a cool park, and it's like right by the ocean, like it's or park, a stadium, whatever the fuck it is, right, right by the lake. Yeah, I mean, like all that and the history of it, I I I get, I love, but I just football players never liked me, and I, the feelings are mutual. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know exactly what you mean. My dad. Being a football coach, I got to meet football players that were 18 to 22 when I was eight years old, and so they were nice to me because my dad was their boss. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I and and my brothers both played. But I know exactly. I, I know how cultures clash. Um, I wanted to talk about trauma and creativity, and if you think there's a connection between having gone through some major life trauma or and how that translates into like inspiration or a need for acceptance or why typically so many comics are like morbidly like self-deprecating like that's a trait but always making fun of themselves in a way you know i think if, i don't i not to not to brag but i yeah. I, I have a lot of trauma <laughs> i have yeah. several f- that doesn't sound like a brag to me <laughs> well it is when you're creative because it i i mean for as much trauma as i had i should be a fucking genius i just somehow fell, right. <laughs> fell short of that um i don't i i i think there was i like I already was as as a small child was already introverted and and liked to be alone and with books and and write. I think that that yep. that was already somewhat there. I think um and I think trauma, I think physical trauma, I I got a, a lot of beatings and I think it became um, I, I think it's it definitely a defense mechanism and it's also becomes a form of escape and it also the form of escape goes beyond I think being creative I think as a kid uh, 
my dad would get angry at me because I didn't want to go outside and play, and I wanted to stay in and watch, like, The Addams Family and The Munsters and Dick Van Dyke and F Troop and all these. And I think that was also, and I'm actually, honestly, partly putting this together as I'm saying it, but I think television was an escape because it also meant I wasn't outside where the guys were who were going to kick the shit out of me. It also meant that I, I, I couldn't break something or do something to piss off my dad who would also not respond well. <laughs> so I think that was like multi, multi-level escape. And it's also same, I think, with going into my room. And it's also I could create the worlds that were safe. But I also was drawn to comedy and films at a very young age and like PBS and like not like like whenever I never like like other than like Warner Brothers like cartoons which I thought were pretty still are pretty advanced comedically yeah sans some of the really overt racism (laughs) but yeah for sure but uh like I was like drawn to the Marx Brothers and PBS the local PBS channel played uh, reruns of Ernie Kovacs which was for a kid that shit's just I mean some of his stuff is bizarre by today's standards and, yeah and um, and I didn't like shit like my dad noticed I liked those he actually my dad suggested Ernie Kovacs to me but he noticed I liked comedy but he was like oh you'd probably like Danny Kay and Jerry Lewis and I was like nope not having it because it was just mm. um, I don't know it was the Marx Brothers were over the top, but there was a. It was grounded in something, and also I think, the Marx Brothers were low status attacking, the upper class, where like Jerry Lewis, right. those guys were victims, and I didn't want to be a victim, so I think the Marx Brothers reverberated more with me because they were, rebelling, and I I think that translated into my. Uh, Attraction to John Belushi, who also was like this, just danger. There was there's a dangerousness about him that I just really uh, had never, no one had ever seen. Yeah, I don't know if that answered the question, but I I think I do think like it. Um, I think even today that trauma is there's some. I think that's like there's things that happen in the world and it affects me and it causes emotion, uh, fear, anxiety, um, depression, shame, remorse. And I feel like if I can find a way to exercise that or even so it's and the self deprecating thing comes from, I think being hurt and you go, if I can beat you to it. And I think it's also why like guys like Spalding gray or, other or like prior or so honest and revealing about their lives, their own personal mistakes and fuck ups. Because if I put it out there before you attack it, I've protected it and I've protected myself. For sure. Um, If we can keep needling in the same direction, I think you had mentioned that maybe you experienced a significant trauma as a child, too, involving your father. Yeah. If you want to talk about that. Yeah, I'm an open book. I'm like Spalding Gray. 
<laughs> Do you know Spalding's work? Uh, a little bit. His book, somebody gave me his book in high school, Sex and Death to the Age of 14, and it was the first time I read something. And I was like, there was just so much raw, like, there's a, even a story of him. I think it's that book where he, like, communes with Mother Nature, so he fucks the dirt. And I was like, I was just astounded by the bravery because, like, when I was a kid, when that year... In, the bravery of the action or, or of sharing that? Of sharing it. Because the world yeah, I grew yeah, up yeah. in, you wouldn't even admit that you masturbated. Like, And right. then when I started, like, hanging around Second City Theater, people were like, yeah, I fucking went home, jerked off, and went to bed. And I was like, people talk this way? <laughs> but <laughs> but um, right. uh, my father... I, it's funny because I didn't re- uh, really I don't want to make my dad sound like a bad person Because I didn't really fully understand my father's Anger and frustration until I had a kid uh, And I was yeah. broke And like selling my car So we could have food And I was like oh my god my dad was not Angry with m- with me I just was nearby So I was Where he expressed it And he didn't have art or anything to express His emotion So it came out poorly uh, right. He was angry. Uh, he was scary. Um, I, I mean, I, he died when I was 13, and I think so. I never was able to, um, until I until I had a kid, I wasn't able to really fully understand it or ha- have uh, a talk with him about it. But he also, and I don't know if I told you this, and this gets heavy, but I've also been telling the story for 40 years, so it's, it's like, it's almost... 40 years but my dad accidentally shot himself in front of my mother and i was in the next room and she's like cleaning a gun or something or no my dad wasn't very smart with guns uh he yeah. to the the he the pistol he accidentally shot himself with he found on the street in chicago it was in an uh-huh. old, like those old like time like bank bags like a canvas bag that would like have loot in it like that you would see in a cartoon except it didn't yeah. have the dollar sign on the side <laughs> but and I yeah. he found it and he took it home and I was like eight and I was like I don't think this is like I was like shouldn't you call the cops like I I showed more logic and reason than he did Jeez. And Shouldn't you drop that in a public mailbox that has fingerprints all over it already? It's like yeah, it was just like the dumbest. And I, if I, I don't think I'm misremembering this. I don't think that's a word, but I think it had the serial number filed off, which is. But it's also it's like it's in a money right. bag, so it clearly was used for something nefarious. And yeah. Um, but then, like, we were going to go camping, like the next weekend. We got home from a birthday party, like a family birthday party, on like a Friday night. He probably had a few Olympias in his belly. And uh, mm-hmm. my mom was reading. She was laying in bed, and he just said he was. we were going to take it with us camping because mm-hmm. uh, there were some problems. And my mom's not sure what happened, but it went off. I it, And I was half asleep, and it woke me up, and I ran in because my mom was uh, upset. Obviously, <laughs> and, and my mom just started cleaning and making cookies. Um, but I, I, so that you know, that's a lot for a kid to see. And there was other things that happened at the hospital and stuff that were pretty, pretty intense that I probably won't share here. I'll share with you, just because it's like. But it's weird because, I, um, when I tell because I've I've written about this and I've told this story so many times that it gets 
to the point where I, I feel like I've dealt with it and talked about it. And I mean, there's still, uh, it's, you don't ever fully get past it, but it yeah. gets to the point where when I tell people this story, I start feeling horrible because the people who hear it are, have to experience this story or yeah and i think like it usually comes up casually like oh yeah my dad died or like hey what's your parents do and i'll be like oh my dad's dead and then people are always like oh when did that happen i'll be like uh you know and they i think they expect like you know heart attack or <laughs> something something yeah. pedestrian and it's like and then i lay this story and i know how it's and i often buffer it with like hey this isn't fun <laughs> it's like but it's uh it's but it's definitely, I mean, I, I undeniably a defining moment in my life. And I think I've carried not that and the, the beatings, uh, you don't, it, you, you, it, it makes it hard to be present. And I think you know, one is always working angles of what could be around the next corner what could be a problem and right um, which in a weird way translates to writing because if you're writing a story it allows you to see ahead and see angles that things could go um which is it and it's like it's also i mean it has kept me and I bartended in a dive bar near Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles for 10 years. So mixed with... Which one was that? It was this bar called Bar 107. It was on 4th Street between Spring and Main. It opened uh-huh. in 2005. Um, mm-hmm. I'd, I had guys, like, smoke crack. Uh, yeah. People fuck in the bathrooms. People throw shit at me. I'd been spit on. <laughs> it's like... I mean, it was rough. Yeah. It was a... And so I think that... 10 years of that and my childhood really puts one at able to see danger and uh, but and I was able to I think thankfully probably was able to get up myself or avoid a lot of bad situations in life because I had that I could spot trouble I was never like bartending if somebody walked in the door I would be like this guy's going to be a problem I was always never was I wrong yeah and uh like reading an audience too in a way yeah would stand up or something yeah it's uh that's an interesting point because i think maybe that does help as a performer because because i i'd like to not like i don't know i'd like to see what i could push and you or i even would do it in social situations just to see where you could go with people and i think yeah. i think that is always i think that's always kept me from trouble with Unless I had too many drinks, and let's that. <laughs> right. Um. Yeah. Jeez. I mean, maybe. Maybe the bartending thing, like in those confrontations, made you feel like, oh, I don't have to perform anymore. Like I've gotten more. Like bombing as a comedian, we musicians totally bomb too. You know, what is that? Usually, like music because one feels. I feel like as a musician, at least you have a band or music, 
Mm-hmm. Not always. Right. I mean, you, sometimes you perform solo because, like, I've done a whole tour where it was just me, me by myself, you know? Um, like, in Europe, opening up for someone else. Oh, yeah. Op- that, opening's got to be, that's got to be tough. That's, I mean, it's it's probably similar to comedy where you know without a doubt that 97% of the people in most of those situations are not there to see you. And you get... The worst is if someone that you actually know came to see you that night, and then that's just what they think you do every night, right? Oh, I had that happen where a woman, I was like, we were flirting, and it was going really well, and we were like talking on the phone all the time, and she came and saw me do a show, and the person before me just ruined it, like just sucked all the energy out of the room, and that, and to follow that sometimes is... That's called getting Chuck buried. (laughs) From what I've heard, is that Chuck Berry would insist on playing first and blow away the local band. Oh, that's interesting. Uh Uh-huh. And so did she stay for your set, but you didn't see her after the set? I saw her, but did the flirting... The sparks were a little dimmer. It was gone. It was gone. And it was... I had a bad set, but it's like... You know, civilians, as they, as I like to call them, don't understand the. Di- those How do you do that? Yeah, I bombed it. I opened up for Julio Iglesias and bombed in front of four thousand people. That oh my god was brutal. <laughs> That's yeah. It's also I should have really never opened up for Julio Iglesias because I took it. Partly because, well, I my account was like three hundred dollars in a negative balance, and I was going to make a grand. So, yeah. So, yeah. But uh, and my friend who booked it, she, she was like, "They want you can't talk about these certain topics and blah blah blah." And I was like, "You know, I'm going to bomb, right?" And she's like, "Yes, but it's going to be a great story." <laughs> and I was like, "You're right. It's going to be a great story." <laughs> you're, you're t- in fact, you're telling it right now. <laughs> we we were opening. As a trio in England, I'll make this short, but it was, you know, three of us and it was a packed house and the headliner was um, selling out night night after night and we're maybe having a shot of tequila and I'm giving the, the other two a pep talk. Are you guys scared? Are you scared at all? Nope. Are you nervous? Nope, I'm not nervous. And the stage manager, before we'd started talking, he's like, so you're playing on Prince's stage. And we're like, huh? And he was like, Prince played here. And this is after Prince is already in heaven. And he's like, and he didn't like, the stage wasn't up to snuff for him, so he paid to have the, the stage resurfaced. And so you were playing on Prince's stage tonight. I was like, wow, that's really cool. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. That's neat. And I was like, okay, guys, let's, let's have fun. Let's go out there and do that. Are you nervous? Nope. Are you nervous? Nope. And he's like, well, you should be nervous because they don't give a fuck about you. Like right <laughs> before we walked out. Like that's a stage manager. Oh, that's the stage manager before Julio fucked me that way too because he was like, 
<sighs> he just he was like, okay, uh, we do things two ways around here. We do uh, there's your way and Julio's way. We do it Julio's way. And then he said, also, Julio might not want to come out, so uh, you might have to make up some more material or just you, you know if he's not ready, you just have to keep going. And I was like, why are you telling me this before I go on stage? I was like, if, oh, yeah. like if Julio just wants to take a bath, like, ah, maybe I'd take a bath. <laughs> it's like, you know, I was like, so that I walked, and then even before, and then the lights went out, and they thought Julio was coming out. It's, this is all fucking, you know, 60, 70-year-old people. They don't give a fuck about some 30-something-year-old stand-up comedian. Like, it, it was the last thing they wanted to see. And before I yep. reached the microphone, I was getting, some old guy yelled out, give him the hook. <laughs> Like, oh my god! They didn't even want like I I was heckled before I even did one joke. Oh yeah. Well, it's also the theory that most people that work in the theater, be it a sound man or a stage manager, have performed in the theater also before, and now they're not on stage. You're on stage, and they're going to let you know, kind of, that you're nobody. Oh, that's a good point, and I think that's accurate. Yeah, a lot of stage Most sound people were in bands, like in the music thing. And so many of them have a chip on their shoulder that you're on tour and they're not, in a way. Shout out to all the sound men. Um, we love you when, when, when you when you do your part. Trying to do ours. That's not what I felt like in, uh, in Chicago. Like a lot of, I would teach improv classes and... A lot of the guys who were writing reviews would be students or were former students. I'm like, you're writing reviews about shows at places, a theater you couldn't get hired at. You clearly have a oh. fucking agenda. Oh, totally. One of my only reviews that, like the first review I basically ever read of one of my albums, and they gave it like a four point something. And it's one of a beloved album of people that listen to and like my music. And someone said, I looked him up. He was, he was 18 years old at the time. Like the person reviewing my record was 18 when I was 30. And, and he was also a musician, of course. Right. You know, and was jealous of the label I was on, or so. Eighteen is not. I was. I would say I was fairly savvy for an eighteen-year-old, and that's you're still not savvy because you're eighteen. And it's like I would have no right to write a review about anything. No, and he was from Chicago, so he had that. What we talked about on my episode, he had that burly exterior that could be so kind of like cut you down but it, it was like the name of this band like Little Wings the name is clearly expressive of a lack of a musical vision like just to begin, from the get go kind of like anyway 18 uh, years ago it, st- it was like huh wonder if my album that I worked hard on that I love so much got reviewed let me see here like you know yeah, it's hard not to, because I and I, I think I told you I've written reviews and I quickly was like, this is bullshit. Like this is, I, right. I desperately needed the money at the time. So I, not that it was even remotely good money, but it was like what it was like fifty bucks or something. But fifty bucks is 
groceries. And but it was just like I felt horrible doing it and I'm like and it's like you you could have a shit day and then you you know it's like I've listened the first time I listened to um the oh fuck the the Wayne, what's Wayne Coyne's band? I can't, Flaming Lips. Flaming Lips. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the album with Superman on it, whatever that song is. I'm f- totally. Yeah. F- first time I heard. Waiting. That, for man. The first time I heard that the album. Soft bulletin. Yes. The first time I heard that album, I hated it. I was like, this, this is fucking terrible. And then I put it back on like a couple months later, and I was obsessed with it for a year. So it's like if I would have written a review after that one listen or whatever it would have been total bullshit but then i it was like an album i could i listened to so much people at work were like fucking knock it off <laughs> yeah 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 well it that just depends on the age of an album then because at 18 or 17 or whenever i had a friend who had an older brother who was like in the marines but he was really into music and um turned his younger brother onto music that he'd be like Dude, like the Holy Grail, like my brother turned me on to this record. It's really good. And it was like like the Clash London Calling, for instance, I think was one record that the first time through, it was a lot to get through. It was like 19 songs, double album. And the first time through, I liked about three songs. But I always thought that that was my fault not the artist's fault that I needed to kind of grow my ears around this new thing that's new to me. And the fact that it was already established as a legendary album, it was like, oh, I'm the problem. This is a, I'm just new to this music, you know? And it was a challenge. And that was what was so, that was almost the puzzle, the puzzling challenge was to learn to love every song eventually, you know? And it, t- it took time, but I-, I still love that whole record front to back, and and I honestly only loved a few songs first. So, I, yeah, I think a lot of people just listen to something once and give their first take and spray it out everywhere. Yeah, um, it's like, it's not fair to the artist. And it's like, if you're like writing for Rolling Stone or whatever, you're probably inundated with other shit you got to do. So it's like, you're not giving anything a fair shake. It doesn't, and I always am like, there's like definitely bands I hate. So I'm like, how do I review something like for lack of a better example, Britney Spears. Like, I don't like that. I don't like overproduced pop music. Like, how would I be subjective and write about that? Right. When it's every, when it represents everything I hate about the music industry. <laughs> it's like, and right. then, you know, people write good reviews about that stuff. And I'm like, how did you pull that off? Because this is bullshit. It's a living, I guess. Yeah. And then it's like, I think people get, I think they get a status and they start believing their own bullshit. Right. Like they think, you know, like uh, Dorothy Parker would write really scathing, funny reviews. And I, I've seen other people try to do that. And I'm like, you're not Dorothy Parker, pal. Put it away. And I don't, and it, it, she probably shouldn't have done it either. It's not fair to the artist. Right. Um, is there any way we could take a break? I'm, I'll be right back. Well, it's not going to exactly be a break because episode two is up on Patreon. So you can go and listen to episode two of Kyle Field's interview with me right now. Again, thank you very much for listening.
to those of you who've listened to all 200 episodes, I want to hug you. Um, that is all. Thank you very much. I've been being by the phone anxiously. Is this Matt Dwyer? <laughs> I gotta do what I don't want to High as the haints that hunt and hunt you